Welcome to the Forgotten Art Project Podcast, where we ask the question, what makes you feel alive? These are the stories of your pursuit. All right. Hello, everybody. My name is David, and I'm excited to have my co-host today with me, my wife, Winter. And today we are talking with Helen and Mickey. Thanks for being here, guys. Thanks so much for having Thank us. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about yourselves. So we work in the theater industry. Uh, we're based out of Seattle, but work all over. Um, we met as single parents in the theater industry, um, which is a pretty brutal industry for theater par- uh, single theater parents. We basically don't exist. Um, so I said to him once, single theater parents got to stick together and uh, now I'm getting married. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so that's us. Uh, you started your own theater company. You want to talk about that a little bit? I did. I started a theater company called National Disability Theater. So we partner with Tony Award winning theater companies across the country like La Jolla Playhouse in San Diego and the Goodman Theater in Chicago and work with them to produce theater that is uh, completely cast by, produ- cast with, produced by, uh, created by people with disabilities. And we really work to educate people about disability gain and how theater can be exciting and professional, not just in spite of people's disabilities, but also in part because of them. That's what you Very do. Cool. I do a lot of work um, as a performer. I also do a lot of teaching artist work. So I'm the people person who like goes to a school, does a show for like an assembly and then sticks around in the classrooms and like takes students further into the subject matter they learned in the play, uh, which I'm really passionate about because I think there's so many barriers to children making it to the theater. I think it requires some amount of like wealth and transportation and just like familiarity with social norms of a theater. But when you go to a school, you take that barrier away. And then also I think theater just engages so well with so many different learning styles, whether you learn like visually or by hearing or kinesthetically, like you can engage with theater. So I'm really passionate about that. So that's kind of what we do professionally. And then just personally, I talk a lot about how I'm an immigrant woman of color and that affects my existence in America a lot every single day. And how about you? And I'm autistic and legally blind. And so so I was in special ed through school, through high school. Um, And so that has really affected my journey a lot to finding a path forward in the arts. Cool. That's Mm -hmm. awesome. You guys have such diverse backgrounds. I'm I'm excited to hear, um, you know, how that has kind of played out through your lives and unfolded and taken you to where you are now. So um, we talked a little bit before about kind of which, which stories you guys want to talk about. So where do you think a good place to start would be? You want to go first or me? I don't sure, care. I can, go, I can go first. I feel like we have our own separate journeys that then connect yes. in the middle a little uh-huh. bit. <laughs> yeah, okay. So let's do one at a time and then let's, let's bring them together. Sure, okay. So I uh, am, it's very unlikely that I'm working as an artist. I think uh, growing up as a good little girl in an Asian household, like the, the trope is real. Like you do have a little bit of pressure to be a doctor or a lawyer or something. Um, so I got pre-accepted into law school in 12th grade and I had like made it. Everyone was so proud of me. Um, but then I took a year off, which is really common in Australia. It's really common to finish high school, take a year off, go travel the world and then come back to university. So I took a year off, traveled the world. Surprise, surprise, figured out more about myself when I was out of the environment I'd always been in. And I came back and was like, I don't want to be a lawyer anymore, which was very alarming for my family. I definitely <laughs> got long distance phone calls from Asian aunties, very concerned. Uh, and my parents were like, okay, okay, you don't have to do law school, but you still need some sort of business degree. So I was like, okay. And I did accounting instead. I guess I thought that would be a good alternative. I don't know. So my soul died. <laughs> <laughs> um, but finally like my second year I got a general elective so I could pick whatever I wanted to do offered by my college so I remember going to the college website and just scrolling through every single available course just looking for something that like might bring life to my soul again and I saw one that was called children's theater and I was like you know what that sounds fun I'm gonna do that and then by the end of that semester, I was ready to change my whole degree. So I just knew so clearly, I had such a moment of feeling like 
connected with my creator one night on stage where I was like, oh, this is what I was put on the earth to do. And it was just an unshakable knowing that I've never lost sight of since. Just all of a sudden had this bolt of clarity like, oh, I was put on this earth for a reason and it was to work in this industry with children through this industry. So I changed my degree program the very next semester, got a degree in English and creative arts, theater and drama studies, um, moved to America and expected to work as a drama teacher. Um, but I auditioned for a thing, got cast, I auditioned for a thing, got cast, and I haven't turned into a public school drama teacher yet, so that's a win. <laughs> um, so yeah, so as I said, I work a lot um, as a teaching artist, working in schools, um, doing musicals and things when I can. I know Winter has brought uh, your girls along to a couple things that I've been yeah. in. Yeah, um, we love watching you at Center Stage. Can you talk about that a little bit more too, what you're doing there? Because that's a little bit teaching, mm -hmm. or at least yeah. Yeah, definitely. So I work really closely with a semi-professional theater company in Federal Way, Washington, which is south of Seattle. I think it's north of where y'all are. So I yeah. don't know if you tell the internet where y'all are. So I'm just saying north. <laughs> um, so I work there. I'm now their operations and marketing manager. So I wear many hats, but I started off being a performer in uh, their British pantomimes. And pantomime is a British genre of theater that is not silent. It's very over the top, lots of audience participation, lots of like, when we say this, you say this. Um, so I like it because again, it sort of breaks down like theater norms. I feel like for a long time, theater has been the realm of like old wealthy white people. We're just supposed to be quiet and enjoy the theater. And theater is going to die when they do, if we keep those rules. So <laughs> I like that Panto really breaks those rules. I think that's uh, just really wonderful and what we need right now. So. I've done uh, three pantos now, every time played a strong female lead, which I think is so important for girls to see. And it's also been really great to see me being an Asian Little Red Riding Hood, Asian Belle, Asian Maid Marian, and just broadening people's ideas of these roles that I guess are cast traditionally white, but like, why? So it's been really nice for me to just be there and in a way almost passively like change what people think by just being a different visual for them. So yeah. That's what I do with Interstage. Cool. So I, um, I have really been acting my whole life in one way or another um, as an autistic person. Really the biggest thing that people try to teach you in school and through therapies, I would say is how to pass as neurotypical, which means really just how to act like you're not autistic and convince people that you're not autistic. So I've been acting my whole life. Um, and one of the biggest things that changed my life is my grandmother who raised me had a subscription to Seattle Children's Theater. And so as an autistic person growing up, you know, I had no friends. I would spend lunch breaks and recesses through high school pacing the hallway, not knowing who to talk to, how to talk to them or how to make a friend. But anytime I got to go to Seattle Children's Theater, I would get to sit in the dark and see real human interactions happening in front of me in a way that really gave me that soul food of human connection that makes life worth living that I just wasn't getting anywhere else in my life. So um, I ended up after being, uh, after high school, I ended up getting to go to the University of Washington School of Drama and it was not the best experience for me. Um, I think a lot of times uh, theater programs right now are struggling with how to include people with disabilities when so much of the curriculum has been created specifically for non-disabled people who look a certain way, have a certain body type. Um, so all through school, no matter what class I was in, uh, do you guys know what stimming is? Yeah, just yeah. just from, yeah, you told me a little bit about it. Totally. But why don't you tell everybody else, because I haven't heard of it before. So stimming is, you know, when if you picture an autistic person in your head, you might picture them flapping their hands or rocking back and forth or uh, touching, patting, spinning around maybe. And that's called stimming. And what it basically is, is it's autistic people's way of regulating their own environment. So if there is 
um, outside stimulus that's coming in that's overwhelming for an autistic person, like the noise of a radiator on in the next room or just loud noises or uh, lights or things like that, you're able to regulate your own sensory, pro uh, sensory processing system by giving yourself input that is larger than the other input that you're in control of. Does that make sense at all? Did I explain mm -hmm. that in a way that yeah. makes sense? And I like yeah. to tell my non-autistic peers that we do this too. If you've ever been like anxious or overwhelmed and started wringing your hands, it's the same thing. You have outside stimulus that you can't control. So you're giving yourself some physical input that you can control to help you deal with it. Um, and that tends to click for a lot of non-autistic people. And I think autistic people maybe just do it more often, uh, maybe in ways that are bigger or ways that are unfamiliar to non-autistic people, but it's essentially the same thing. It's not mysterious. It's not scary. It doesn't mean anything's wrong. It just means that they are regulating themselves. And if only we could all like regulate ourselves so well when we're feeling <laughs> overwhelmed. <laughs> so um, going to UW School of Drama, University of Washington for people who don't know what UW is, um, <laughs> no matter what class I was in, whether I was in Shakespeare class or Chekhov or voice class or Alexander Technique or Shakespeare, any class I was in, the only notes I would get from professors were about my hands, about the movement in my hands and the tension in my hands. Um, and I was told if I couldn't get rid of all that movement and tension in my hands, then I would never work as an actor. So I never got notes or any lessons really about the connection part of being an actor, how to connect with your scene partner, how to change your scene partner, be changed by your scene partner, or tell stories on stage. It was all just four years of trying to make my hands seem less autistic. So I was really lucky that um, after that, I was able to get some work in non-speaking but professional roles at Seattle Children's Theater. So th these were equity roles. Equity is the actors union. So I was at really the, um, the most professional level that there is in Seattle, getting paid to do theater um, as part of the union, but I wasn't getting any speaking roles. Um, and I was only really getting cast by a couple of directors who knew me, intuited something was different about me and thought that there was value in that. So, Along came a show called The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, which is also a best-selling book about a um, autistic teenager um, in the UK who goes on an adventure, really. It's a hero's journey about this autistic boy. And it became a Broadway show. So a casting director who knew me, um, and I don't think that they knew, I don't think I'd ever told them that I was autistic, but they just kind of intuited <laughs> that I was and figured it out on their own, uh, gave me a monologue from that show and said, this is you, you need to read this play, you need to read this book. Um, and so I did. Uh, I didn't have an agent at the time, but I knew that currently there were no autistic actors playing this role on Broadway. No autistic actors had played the role uh, in the UK when it was at the National Theatre of Great Britain. And I thought that there was really value in letting autistic people speak for themselves and letting autistic people educate the world and be the experts in their own lived experience. Yes. So I tried to figure out how to get an audition for the Broadway show. I live in Seattle, Washington. I don't have an agent. The only way to get in touch with any of these uh, casting directors is if you have an agent. So I, uh, I did some research and found out that the casting director of the show, uh, their other job, their resident day job, was that they were casting director for uh, Lincoln Center Theater in New York. So I put together a little letter introducing myself. I created videos of me doing monologues from the show um, and put together a video of me doing the kind of movement that happens in the show and emailed this off to box office at Utu. Daniel Sui, care of box office at Lincoln Center, and just email the box office, which is such a dumb optimism shot. <laughs> but it worked. And a few months later, uh, I heard from Daniel Sui, who is the nicest guy in the world. And uh, they brought me out to New York a few times uh, to audition for 
the Broadway production and the national tour of The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime. Uh, I made it to the final round of auditions, final six Christophers in the room, uh, all in the room at once. Uh, and the producers told me, I think to, they were trying to compliment me, but they told me I was the first autistic actor that they, the producers, had seen audition for the role. And they meant it as a compliment, but to me that felt like, then this isn't really a value to you. You're not doing the work. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of autistic actors across the country. And if I'm the only one you've seen, it doesn't feel like it's an actual priority. It feels like I'm only in the room. So you can say, yes, we auditioned someone who was on the spectrum. Uh, and I was eventually told that the producers just felt it was too big a risk to cast someone who had autism in the role, that there were too many unknowns, they didn't know enough about autism, and that they felt that the producer producing team just wasn't ready, that this was um, a commercial enterprise, and for the commercial enterprise, it didn't make sense to take a risk when they're already making money with what they're doing. Yeah. So, I didn't get it. I'd worked for years and years and years to get on their radar and audition for that part and get the part. Um, but then a theater in Indiana and in Syracuse, Indiana Repertory Theater in Syracuse stage in New York, we're doing uh, the first co-production, the first uh, regional production of The Curious Incident of the Dog, Dog in the Nighttime. Uh, and they decided that they wanted to audition actors who were on the spectrum. Uh, I sent them a videotape. They flew the director to Seattle to audition me here in Seattle and meet me in person for a day. And then I got the part. And it ended up getting more, my getting cast in this little, relatively little professional production because it wasn't in New York, it's in Indiana and in Syracuse, mm -hmm. ended up getting more press um, and more acclaim uh, than the national tour than the Broadway national tour got. So we were in the New York Times, NPR, PBS, Teen Vogue, HuffPost. Wow. It, it, out of it, like, it, it was revealed. It blew up. <laughs> so, so amazing. Uh, so that's and it's paved the way as well. So there have since been other autistic actors who have played. It has role. really, yeah. So since then, many regional theaters have decided, yes, autistic people can do it. You know, when I was auditioning for it, people were saying, I couldn't do it. People were telling me, no, but you don't understand, Mickey. This is a big role. This is a big story. There are big words in this, you know? And uh, and so, so I think me doing it, I got to show all the business leaders in the audience, not just in theater, but in other industries across the country. I got to show all the business leaders in the audience that autistic people can do work at the highest level, that we are professional, that, uh, and that they have no reason to uh, discriminate against people with developmental disabilities. And to quote the musical Hamilton, that we get the job done. So <laughs> that's been my journey. And so since then, I have tried to give back to the theater community by creating National Disability Theater um, and trying to educate other theaters across the country that, yes, you can cast people with disabilities, even if the show is not specifically about disabilities, if the show is just about our world, the world we live in, guess what? 20% of the population, according to the census, has a disability. Mm -hmm. So if you are doing a show about our world, there are people with disabilities in that show because we know from the census, one in five people have a disabilities. There's a long way to go still. 95% mm -hmm. of disabled roles on TV and in movies are played by non-disabled actors. Um, so, but we're doing the best we can. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's so cool. If you go back, so going back to like when you first saw theater when you were younger, did you like with Helen, you knew right away, like, oh, this is, this is my thing. Was it the mm -hmm. same for you? Did you feel like, oh, this is how I'm going to interact with the world? Because it seems like you, you really pursued that for a long time. Yeah, I mean, Helen, you know this better than me. Uh, <laughs> Helen is sometimes more articulate about my story than I am myself. But, um, you know, a lot of autistic people feel a lot more comfortable when they have a specific role, right? Mm. So, like, this 
interaction right now, you and me, is very easy, right? Because the roles are very clear, specific, and laid out. You're the interviewer, I'm the interviewee. You ask questions and I try to sound smart. And, <laughs> um, and so that's why a lot of times autistic people will wear a superhero cape or uh, wear a costume or a clown nose. So, uh, because it gives you a role, it give, or a pirate hat, it gives you a role, it gives you a way to interact with the world where there are more clear job titles, mm -hmm. I guess. Yeah, like, like you've seen it done before. Like when you were a kid, you loved to pretend to be a pirate or a clown because you'd never seen another Mickey interacting with the world, but you'd seen clowns and mm -hmm. pirates interacting with the world. So that you Yeah, do. but if I'm just me, then what am I supposed to do? So this is easy for us because the roles are clear. But if we just saw each other passing on the street, or if we came over to your house to just hang out as peers, it would be a lot harder for me because the roles aren't clear. There aren't like, how do I know what I'm supposed to do or what I'm supposed mm -hmm. to say when? Um, so for that reason, I had always found ways like theater, like being a clown or a stilt walker to interact with the world that allowed me to interact with the world with more clear guidelines, I guess. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so I think in that sense, being an actor seemed like a good career choice because the words are written for you. You practice the blocking, like you go into it, you know where to stand. Like, yes, there's like sounds and lights, which people I think a lot of time think are like too overwhelming for autistic people. But like when it's in theater, you know when it's going to happen, where it's going to be coming from, uncontrolling yeah. and, and overwhelming. So I think because of that, it seems like a good fit to you. Absolutely. Even though so many people were like, no, but you can't. Like for a long time, you were nonverbal as well. And who's going to give a nonverbal kid encouragement that they could work in the theater one day, you know? So I think you have to push through a lot of even just well-meaning people telling you that wasn't yeah. right for you. I think something else people don't know often is a lot of autistics use scripting in their daily life to mm. try to script interactions that they can predict the outcome of. Right. Mm -hmm. And so then my job as an autistic person is to make you believe that all the words I'm saying right now to you, that I'm coming up with them on the spot and that this is the first time I've ever said these sentences <laughs> and that, uh, that this is a spontaneous interaction mm -hmm. that we're having uh, instead of words that I've pre-planned and typed out, you know? Yeah, you have a really yeah. good coffee shop example. Yeah. So like if, if I go to a coffee shop, for example, right? And I see this happen all the time. This is a true story. <laughs> <laughs> I might say to the barista, hi, how's your day going today? And they'll say, good. I'll say, can I have a large coffee? Thank you so much. And then if it seems like more interactions need, I can say, has it been busy today? And then regardless of how the barista replies, if they say, yes, it's been busy, no, it's been slow, I can then say, oh, do you like it better when it's busy or when it's slow? So I have all my lines scripted. I'm gonna say the same thing no matter what they say, but it allows people to think that I'm having sure. quote unquote genuine interaction with them. And really that's the exact same thing we do as an actor. As an actor, I'm given a script and I try to make those words my own and say them in a way every single night, nine shows a week often, in a way that the audience feels they're my words, that I'm coming up with them on the spot, and that this is the first time this has ever happened. Yeah. That's so fascinating. That's really cool. It's, it almost is like, well, of course, when you know all that. Absolutely. You're like, well, of course, yeah. Why would you be? Yeah. I feel like I, I know a few people, well, parents of autistic children, so I, I've learned a little bit about it through parenting, but even this little bit, learning this little bit has been huge in helping understand how autistic people work and interact with the world. Because even mm -hmm. though I knew about stemming and how you're controlling other stimulus, the whole mm -hmm. script thing makes so much sense. Like mm -hmm. that's so, and that's you'll so see a lot of autistic kids, sometimes it's called echolalia is another word. So mm -hmm. a lot of autistic kids will like quote Disney movies and things like that. Um, mm -hmm. They'll have movies or things like that they just quote again and again because it gives them the words with which to interact with the world. Mm -hmm. I think it's so, what you said though is so valuable and so true. And it, it, yes, there is value to talking to parents of autistic children, but mm -hmm. they aren't autistic themselves as much as they sure. work to know their kids. They will never have that lived experience or really know what it's like, except from what they try right. to, into, in, 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 for, try to, learn from watching their kids. But really mm -hmm. the best way to learn about autism is by talking to 
autistic adults. Yep. And I feel like a lot of times people are like, I don't know any, but all those autistic children eventually grow up. Every single autistic child sure. there's ever been has grown up into an autistic adult. Yeah. Um, they have likely become better at passing as neurotypical because you just sure. learn things over time. Um, so that's something we talk about a lot, like talk to autistic yeah. parents. I think um, another, something I often hear autistic parents say, uh, a misunderstanding that they have is, uh, a lot of times autistic parents will call nonverbal autistic kids low functioning. Um, if you've ever heard the word like low functioning autistic, high functioning autistic, mm-hmm. a lot of times people call nonverbal autistic people low functioning. Um, but the truth of them, or you speak better about this than me. Helen actually had got, um, what's the word? When you had your brain injured. So I'll I got pass a off to you. Okay. <laughs> so I was actually in a theater show and my character had a choreographed fall and it went off wonderfully until it didn't. And one night I hit the stage floor instead of the crash pad. So I ended up with a very serious concussion and I ended up with aphasia, which is when you know what you want to say, but you can't say it. Somewhere between your brain and your mouth, the train goes off the rails. Um, So I had that battled through that and I'm at a place now where I can control it a lot better. Um, And it doesn't really affect my day-to-day hardly ever at all. Uh, But through that, I found that more recent uh, research and understanding is that a lot of nonverbal autistic people have aphasia. A lot of times they understand what everyone around them is saying. They know what they want to say, but they can't say it, which I know was was your experience Mm -hmm. when you were a nonverbal child. You understood everything everyone was saying about you, but you just couldn't speak up for yourself. Um, So oftentimes now, if you give nonverbal autistic children some sort of communication device, maybe a keyboard or even just like really simple like pictures that they can point at. There's tons of apps for iPads now, uh, communication programs for autistic people. Um, Oftentimes, and if you like commit to taking as long as it takes for them to figure out on their own terms how it works, a lot of times they will start to communicate. We have been watching the videos recently of a YouTuber called Carly Fleischman, and she is a nonverbal autistic adult, and she now has her own talk show. And she's had like Channing Tatum and Stephen Colbert on there, and she interviews them like by pressing a button on an iPad and like a robotic voice like says the thing that she typed in earlier. There's also another great book called The Reason the reason I jump or the reason why I jump, uh, which is a great novel or a great uh, memoir written by a non-verbal autistic person uh, who was 13, I think, when you wrote the book. So there's just a misconception that just because someone can't speak, it doesn't mean they're less smart or less eloquent if you give them a keyboard or find another way for them to communicate. And often I think they're even more eloquent than a lot of us are because the less you speak, the more you listen and observe, and then the more you actually have to say. Yeah, cool. That's a, that's really <laughs> fascinating. I'm learning so much. <laughs> I have a question. I don't know to <laughs> go, you go, you go. I just wanted to learn more about the stilt walking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I learned tons because I learned there's two different types of stilts. There's like the peg stilts, and then there's also like articulated ones. So tell me about <laughs> that. I love the circuit <laughs> I mean, I don't, it's not that interesting or to not me, I don't think. Not that interesting to you. But um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I love stilt walking. I, How'd you I, find in it? In real life, I'm five feet, I'm five five in real life, which isn't very tall. But when I'm stilt walking, I get to be 10 feet tall. Yeah. Um, I've gotten to stilt walk at the Seattle Opera in La Boheme twice, waving this enormously huge French flag while leading a marching band across that stage on McCall Hall on stilts. Um, but yeah, I just really love stilt walking. So I, tell me the difference. So the peg, okay, I'll tell it. Okay, you go want. for it. So the peg stilts obviously are like the thin ones, so then you have to keep moving so you don't fall down. So uh-huh. I remember like- You kind of look like you have to go to the bathroom all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Quick stepping a little bit. But what they use at like Disneyland and whatnot are like articulated ones where like your foot's here and there's a foot down here and like it moves sort of like this. Like Basically like a double, right? uh, the, I have the painter's ones, but the the uh, real ones are like, they're like $2,000 for a pair of stilts. Wow. And they're articulated basically with double parallelograms. So when your foot moves, okay. foot on the bottom of the stilt moves. Yeah. And you can move your toes separately from the ball of your foot. 
Um, so it's like two separate double parallelograms put together. <laughs> They're your favorite. You great. They're very those. cool. I've, I've never used them, but I'm jealous of all the still walkers <laughs> who have them. But so you DIY'd like, it. I DIY'd like my own. Painter. Painter ones. stilts. And then I took out the springs and took out all the extra pieces and kind of cherry rigged my own in the garage. <laughs> mm -hmm. That sounds fun. Nice. So bringing it back a little bit. Um, if we think about like my favorite question to ask people is what makes you feel alive? And that's a lot of what has, has birthed this whole project and why we're talking to people. And so for you, Mickey, is that something that is even conscious and in, in you like going through and trying to figure out, you know, where you're going through life or does it feel like something different to you? Like, I'm curious, you know, what's your thought process behind like, I mean, we're all trying to figure out our path, right? We're all yeah, trying to figure out how totally to best live that. our life. I think the difference for an autistic person, I think what makes me feel alive is like proprioception and uh, that kind of sensory input, right? Um, so swinging, moving, stilt walking, juggling, unicycling. In Curious Incident, I got to hang upside down and float through space and walk mm. on walls, right? Um, so do we that, need to explain proprioception anymore or do you all get that? Yeah, I, I do, but yeah, it's probably helpful, yeah. yeah. Sure, so I think proprioception is something we all have. It's just the knowledge of where your body is in space. Um, you sort of know where you end. Maybe you're doing a somersault. It's that sense of like, okay, but I know when to like stand up now. Uh, but oftentimes for autistic people, it's not as clear for them. So that's why they might like the sensation of wearing a hat or a weighted vest or just like spinning, flapping. Cause like when it's moving, you know where it is in space. Mm -hmm. a little bit Gives better. you a little more sensory input to mm -hmm. be able to feel yourself in space. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what makes me feel alive. But in terms, your question was more like career wise, changing the world wise, making you feel alive. And I think the difference for autistic people is we're more trying to figure out how to survive a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the unemployment rate for college graduates on the autism spectrum is 87%. And that was before COVID made everyone's unemployed. This is pre-COVID. Mm -hmm. The pre-COVID unemployment rates for autistic college graduates is 87%, um, according to Money Watch, which is really the only, the only place that's done studies on it. Um, so... So I think really the challenge that might be different from someone who might get the gift more of being able to look at lots of different things and say, what do I want to do in life? And an autistic person is autistic people say, I have to make money. <laughs> I have to pay the rent and pay bills. I have a fiance. I have four kids in a blended family and I need to figure out how to make this work. And so, crazily enough, theater has just been the easiest way that I've been able to make that work. Uh, and it doesn't always feel good. I do a lot of public speaking gigs where I go give keynote speeches. I've gotten to do them at the Kennedy Center, Lincoln Center, uh, Yale School of Drama, uh, at the Gershwin Theater on Broadway, and they pay the bills in a way that is very helpful, but they also feel a little bit like a dancing monkey routine in a way. Look at this real life talking autistic person. Yeah, people come, like 2,000 people come and sit in an audience to see a real life autistic person talk, which is just interesting and complicated and also yeah. wonderful and amazing that there's interest and people are wanting to learn mm -hmm. and but, I think people leave really like having changed understanding what they thought autism was and what they thought autistic people were capable absolutely. of absolutely it's like all the things at once yeah which is a lot of yeah. life so i think that might be the difference in terms of career is autistic people are more figuring out how to use a system that was not built for them and how to make it work and play the system the best that they can to survive <laughs> yeah that totally makes sense. Thanks for that. Um, so you guys just mentioned blended family, lots of kids. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that a little bit. I know before we talked about how 
the, the challenges that come obviously with, with having four kids and then being single parents before. And... Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we have a blended family of four boys who are all white or white passing. And it feels like a very big responsibility. Uh, I often say that because sometimes people are like, wow, you're doing such like amazing social justice things. And I'm like, all that aside, the biggest responsibility in our lives is shepherding these four white passing men. Well, I don't care about how many thousands of people on the internet read my post. Don't care. My actual responsibility in this life is making sure that these four men turn out to be good, kind inhabitants of uh, planet earth. Um, I was telling one of them just yesterday, like, I do not care if you are wealthy. I do not care if you're what the world considers smart. I just care that you are kind. Um, and I feel like we tell them that a lot. So that's what we do, but there's a lot of like unstructured play, a lot of Lord of the flies that goes on, <laughs> which we love. I know at least for myself, yours, are your two are younger but mine who are a little bit older and my ideal situation would to be, uh, would be unschooling, but that just wasn't possible when I became a single parent. Like I needed the free childcare that public schooling provided. So I'm a very reluctant public schooler, but um, just doing everything I can to make public schooling as unschooly as possible. So when they come home with homework, which I'm like, homework is stupid at your age and development is like, why are we? Okay. And just mm -hmm. taking that and like finding an unschooly way of tackling that has sort of been my approach with that um yeah so that's sort of it we're figuring well, during out your, in your pursuit of uh you know theater and your dreams tell me a little bit about the challenges and the things that you've overcome in getting that far and like how much you had to work to pay for childcare and all that mm -hmm. yes uh -huh. we talked about this when we uh first met on the phone um so there was one uh really stressful time where I booked a show which, uh, as Mickey talked about before, there's like Actors Equity, which is like the Professional Actors Union. And that's like the top of the game. Like anyone who's on like Broadway or whatever, like they're Actors Equity. And that's when you get like health insurance for acting. Like that's like what we're all striving for. Yeah. Uh, and there's a couple of ways of getting there. But like one is like what's called equity membership candidacy, where you get like cast in an equity show, but you are not equity, but you get enough like weeks of doing those. And then like, okay, now you can have, full-blown equity. So I was cast in a show that was going to get me like equity week. So it would like take me towards my goal. So I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. Um, so it paid me hourly minimum wage, which in Seattle is $15 an hour, which is a really great acting contract in this city. Uh, but when you are a parent and the going rate for childcare in Seattle is 20 to $22 an hour, going to work for $15 an hour doesn't work out. So I was rehearsing like 10 to six, getting paid $15 an hour, and then going to do a closing shift at Nordstrom, and then going to work an overnight postpartum doula shift, sleeping for like an hour and a half, and then going back to rehearsal. So it was very crazy, very stressful. And of course, I had my own children on top of all of this. So it was very stressful, but I got my EMC card. So I got, I'm not equity yet, but I got my week. So, you know, there's all these things that we have to juggle and real sacrifices that we have to make. But I think it's really valuable to do that. I mean, it's such a balancing act, right? Because I never want to sacrifice quality relationship with my kids to pursue this career. At the same time, I want them to see that when I tell them, if you work hard, you can be anything you want to be. I think it's really powerful that they see me doing that, no matter how hard I have to work. So I think it's just that balancing act of showing them, yes, work hard. You can tribute dreams, dreams. That's what I'm doing. Also, I'm not abandoning you to go pursue my dreams. So that balancing act is hard. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think that's really, really valuable. So many things you said about parenting where, you know, wanting them to be kind individuals. We were just talking about, was it today or yesterday? I'm like, I find it so amazing that I have to tell them to be nice so much. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like raising little wolf cubs. Mm -hmm. um, but then, yeah, also like leading by example and, and showing them and, and you're right, that, that balancing act is so tough. It's like, well, at what point do we take it so far? We're so stressed out that now we can't have good quality relationships and, you know, mm -hmm. completely burn out. And then maybe I would have just been better off, you know, working at a gas station or something. Mm -hmm. Um, One easy thing we've been doing lately, we've been calling our book collection, so our kids' books collection, because, um, you know, all, all the kids' books that we had were, had white characters only in them, 
or the lead characters were all white in them. And then we had a few books that um, had people of color as the main characters in the books. But even in those books, there was the main character and then the main character's wife. She didn't, didn't even, get a name. She didn't even have a name, you know oh. what I mean? <laughs> so we've been working hard to get rid of any kids' books that we have that are problematic by way of not modeling the world that we want our kids to know is real um, and trying to find new kids' books. Uh, and so in some ways, it's, it's been really great and easy finding new kids' books to replace them with. And then there are other places where there just aren't kids' books there yet uh, that have good representation for certain groups. So if you're a kids' book writer, <laughs> to write those books for us, we'll buy them. <laughs> yeah, that's sort of how we're trying to gel, uh, juggle pursuing our art fully, wholeheartedly, but also having kids, which I think many people who love art and love their children feel that tension of how do we love all these things at once? We know we can, but how do we not neglect one or the other? It's really hard. Yeah, so have you guys come up with some strategies that you find helpful in, in regards to that? I mean, I think one thing we've done, we've both been pretty um, upfront with theater companies that we're bringing our kids with us. I feel like traditionally theater companies are like, okay, but if you wanted to do theater, why did you have kids? Um, so we've just sort of been like, well, we're bringing our kids and just sort of changing the industry that way. Um, so like at my office at the theater company, there's like a corner next to my desk where there's like a blanket and some quiet toys and things. I'm just like, I'm bringing my kids. And like when I don't, when I can't find childcare, or like we know like childcare people like flake out my kids just come to rehearsal with me and it's fine. I think a lot of time people without kids are like, but they're going to be so disruptive. But meanwhile, these people aren't like hanging out with kids and they don't like actually, actually know, know. <laughs> what it's like. Um, and also like, even if the kids are disruptive, like, okay, they're kids. We were kids once too. And I think we get so like, we feel like our work is so important that we cannot be interrupted by children. Like get over yourself. Like, is it really that important? You know? So I feel like that's there might I'm be thinking. kids in the audience. So it's a good practice. Yeah. This is yeah, all for them anyway. Even if there aren't going to be kids in the audience, right? We are doing this work for actual human beings mm -hmm. with actual lives. And if we are going to deny our own humanity in the process, and deny the things that make us human, we're cutting ourselves off from that. You know, we, by having kids, it, it helps us to remember, to be grounded and remember, this play is about people and for people. And if it's not, why the hell are we doing it? Mm. Love it. Man, you guys are very inspiring. I'm <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. You're I was done. so inspired by you. What's your Instagram? We're like, wow, we should get a van. We should go places. <laughs> <laughs> Do it, road trip. Uh -huh. um, yeah, I just thank you so much for you know sharing your story and, and telling us all the things that you've gone through. And um, yeah, we no, go for it. You guys started a consulting agency. Oh, yes, mm -hmm, we did. So tell us about that and what work you're doing through that. Yeah, so we were like, hey, so you're like a white disabled man. I'm a immigrant woman of color. We cover like a lot of bases, not all of them, but we cover a lot. So uh, let's like start consulting. So we uh, do like equity, diversity, inclusion and accessibility trainings because we can just uh, speak to a lot of experiences from our own lived experience. Um, and we felt like that was really important to do, just be really intersectional. Sometimes we feel like an equity work, it seems to be like, it can only be one thing at a time. Like we can only think about gay people right now, or we can only think about like race issues right now, but we can't like, we can't blend them all. We can, our brains can only handle one thing at a time. And we're like, okay, but people in life is not one thing at a time. So let's have like consultancy that starts from that sense of like, okay, but everything intersects and is interrelated. And that we're all stronger together mm -hmm. and that we all need to work together and realize that, um, yeah, that. I say a lot that a rising tide lifts all boats. Correct. And if a lot of like historically oppressed peoples band together, that is going to be how we're going to like deconstruct, mm -hmm. uh, systems of oppression in this country. It's gonna take us all working together. So that's what we do. So far it's looked like advising theater companies. Um, most recently we advised a really small community theater in Tacoma. They were taking a show that was gonna be 
done live, but then they had to move it to Zoom. And so we gave them some accessibility consulting on how they could make that accessible. So the group we did with Kathy. Mm -hmm. well. Yeah, we did a webinar as well for like a bunch of cultural arts organizations in Seattle. So like big places like Mopop and Seattle Rep and all those places Mohai. were there. And so we talked about how they can make their online virtual content now more accessible to people with disabilities. And when they rebuild post COVID, how can they build accessibility for disabled folks into the fabric of their organization instead of it being attacked on afterthought. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what we hope to do with a uh, um, consultancy agency. It's new, we're figuring out where it's gonna go, but um, yeah, we just feel like Everything with the lockdown has been a good opportunity for the world to reset if they want to let it be a reset. So we are trying to help guide people when they're like, okay, we want to reset. We're like, okay, we can help you do that. So, and again, from that just own voices perspective, I think sometimes a lot of damage can be done when like people try to speak for other people and not from lived experience. Mm -hmm. um, it can be really helpful to hear from an actually autistic person. Um, I know right now people are like, okay, but white people stop and listen to black people about what help they need. And there's that thing like listen to the people, follow them for guidance as to how to help them. So we're trying to step up and, and be that. I love it. That's awesome. Yeah, see, it's just, again, I'm so inspired. You're like, well, okay, we did this and now, okay, so what's next? And what's, are you guys always thinking like that? Are you thinking, oh, what's next? Or is it just kind of unfold and, and then you go for it? I think we see things very differently. You and I are <laughs> Don't say more. So I think that I, okay, y'all know like this, the starfish story of like the little boy who threw in a starfish at the yeah. time. Yeah. Do you need me to like say the story for this? It's listening? a difference for that one starfish. Yes. yes. So me and my way of doing things, I pick up a starfish and I throw it and I watch to see if it made it into the water. And if it didn't, I go get that starfish and I throw it again and I'm very methodical. I look at the project in front of me and I do it as best I can. I see it through to completion. And then once that's done, I'm like, okay, what's next? Mickey mm -hmm. gathers armfuls of starfish, chucks them at the ocean and then like goes and grabs more. And it's like, okay, if only like 50% of them make them, that, that's cool. Mm -hmm. And I think in that sense, he tends to like think really big and really far in advance. And it's like, okay, but we're gonna do this now for this thing that's gonna be far down the road. So I think sometimes we clash because we see things differently like that. And other times really beautiful things happen because we help balance each other out. <laughs> nice. That's cool. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's so great how everybody just has a different, different way of moving, moving through the world. Um, from your guys' perspective, if you were to give somebody advice on like, here, here's something that we picked up or here's something to think about in, you know, going and living a life that makes you feel alive. What would you say to them? I, oh, you go. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I think like the world needs you. The world needs Helen. The world needs everyone so much. And when we are afraid and we aren't courageous, we're shorting the world. We're shorting the world of what we could be giving them and shorting the world of our potential. So, and also don't feel like you need to know every step of the journey to take that first leap. You know, I don't need to know what every single tile at the bottom of the swimming pool looks like to jump off the diving board. So I think that sometimes if you just take that first step, then once you get there, you'll be able to see more clearly what the next step is and then take that step and figure it out. But mostly just be brave and know that the world needs you. And if you're not brave and you're not creative, you're, sh you're shorting the world. Mm -hmm. And I think my thing is to like really trust yourself and your intuition and that thing that you love, that you feel passionate about, do that. Even if other people are like, this is stupid. Why are you doing this? This isn't benefiting anyone. Like if that's the thing that you love and you are passionate about, then like do that, do that as best you can and then see what happens from there. Um, I feel like at least my own life, like when I had that moment uh, in children's theater, like, this is what I'm supposed to do with my life. What I'm actually doing while it's still under that umbrella is not what I thought it would be at that time. But just like taking the next step as it came my way has led me to here. And I'm like, oh, I'm doing the thing. And I, I love what I'm doing. Um, but at the same time, as I said before, I'm not losing sight of the fact that I think my most important job, though, is um, stewarding my kids well, which doesn't mean sacrificing my art but I don't want to be so obsessed about like changing the world mm -hmm. that I don't take care of like 
the world that I have the most like input into at this point in time, which is the four little lives that have been entrusted to my care. So. Yeah. Awesome. I think that's, that's amazing advice. And, and I totally agree. I think the easiest way to also like avoid being overwhelmed by the chaos of everything is like, okay, what, who can I impact? That's like right here in my little world and mm-hmm. just focus on that. And then that is the best, easiest way to make a difference um, when it feels like the whole world's falling apart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. I think especially like even now during lockdown time when people are like, I can't go do the things in the world I was doing. I was like, but okay, but you still have your little close little circle. And you got the gift of staying home with your family. Like what an immense gift that is to be able to stay home with your family and not have a choice except to spend time, quality time with your family. Yeah. Sometimes it's play frozen two Uno all day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes, correct. <laughs> oh, man. Any, anything else you want to add? Um, is there anything that we can look forward to seeing either of you in in the future? I don't know if everything's on hold right now because of COVID, or if you're still planning on the coming theater season. Mm-hmm. Yeah, watch for you. Right now, the theater season is every. It feels like every month the theater season gets canceled for another couple months. Yeah. So right now it looks like most of the large theaters in the country have canceled their season for the next year, at least. Wow. Um, so what I was doing when I was playing uh, Mozart in Amadeus, um, yeah. when this all, when our whole world mm-hmm. changed in this specific COVID way, um and so our show closed our opening night ended up we were supposed to run for a while but um our opening night ended up being our closing night just because of how everything laid out i think we were one of the very very last professional shows Mm -hmm. in new york to Mm -hmm. happen in front of an audience broadway closed and then we did our show the next day after broadway closed and everything was done so now we're just waiting yeah waiting i've been like sending in self-tape auditions for places as they've requested them mm-hmm. uh but we don't know the industry's kind of on hold um so again it's a good time for us to do consultancy when the yeah. companies aren't doing anything else it's a good time to be like okay let's like review the faq section new website and let's see how we can make it accessible and welcoming to people with disabilities just sort of that thing so i think mm-hmm. uh, the consultancy stuff will be keeping us busy and other than that who knows <laughs> we'll get back to it for sure as soon as we can yeah for sure awesome good cool well thank you so much guys we really appreciate your time we learned a ton and we're inspired and we appreciate you yeah thank you so much thank you so much bye bye yeah. are we pausing we actually leaving like what's happening now oh. yeah we're ending <laughs> stop recording